Welcome to the 20th podcast in our Genesis 12 through 36 sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called Bargaining with God. Welcome, everyone, whether you're here in person at the Steeple Center or if you're watching or streaming online, we're glad that you're able to be a part of what's going on this morning. Uh, Just a word for those of you who are parents with kids, we're doing an every other week kind of thing for city teens right now, the program that pre-pandemic used to be every week. We're kind of guiding, we're, we're, we're... not guiding, we're charting our way through uh, uh, what our programs look like on Sunday morning now that we've been back together for a while and now that we're going, getting into the fall. So uh, just so you know, there are, is nursery care available every Sunday morning that we are providing for those who are coming, families who are here, and then every other week is uh, City Kids and what happens after nursery for grade school age kids. So. In case you're wondering about that, that's what's going on this Sunday. Next Sunday will be nursery care and uh, city kids for all those ages. Again, welcome. Glad you're here with us. We are working our way through the book of Genesis. In case you're just joining us, we are up to the end of chapter 28, moving into chapter 29. Last week, we talked about the scandal of the gospel and what really makes The good news, so scandalous when we begin to really fully and deeply understand what the gospel is about. We looked at Jacob's life more and uh, considered how his life is marked by scandal. Even as we look back to chapter 27 and 28, there is nobody guiltless, there is nobody sinless, there is a whole lot of scandalous stuff going on, yet God chooses by his grace, through his grace, to uh, extend his grace to Jacob and his family and to use them as a part of his larger covenant purposes to bless everyone, all families of the earth, for all time. God chooses people uh, who don't deserve him. And through that choosing and working and extension of grace, God does even greater things. So we explored that idea of the scandal of God's grace this past week. Even in our weakness, we have to admit, when is it that I personally have ever deserved anything that God has given me, any of his blessings, any of the things I've received from him? Never at one point can I pinpoint a time where I've deserved it. God continues his pattern of showing scandalous grace even to people like me. So we responded in worship and praise to that fact last week. We are moving forward uh, through the end of chapter 8, like I said, into chapter 29. There are a lot of names that we've looked at, and we continue to get more and more names thrown at us. And if you've never read the book of Genesis, if you're unfamiliar with that part of the Bible, 
It can get confusing, the genealogies, and you really kind of have to know the context because the context of these families does speak into where we're at now and what's going on. So just a quick review. Uh, I even, I, I mentioned last week, maybe we should have like a family tree. So this is my effort at a family tree on the screen, and I hope it's not more confusing than it's worth. But we're going to start here with Abraham and Sarah. So the second portion of the book of Genesis that we've isolated began all the way back with chapter 11. And the, the first mention of Abraham and Sarah uh, when their names were different, and then God sending Abraham and Sarah, chapter 12, all the way fast forward to where we're at now. And that little diamond means they're married, okay? <laughs> that's, what, that's what it means, in case you're wondering, what is that weird looking thing? So, uh, that line that goes horizontal with little circles on either end of it, that signifies a sibling. So all the way back to chapters 11 and chapter 12, when we're first introduced to this family, we see this connection between Abraham and Nahor because they are brothers and that family line that you see leads down, the arrows leading down. So that means you know that that couple had that child and they had that child. So that line leads down through Bethuel to Laban. We were introduced to Laban for the first time just two, three weeks ago, and we keep coming back to Laban. So he is a major player. So by the way, I'm not adding every name that every person we're introduced to in these genealogies, but the main players. Laban is a main player, and we're going to see how that uh, plays out this morning. So back to Abraham and Sarah. They had a number of kids, but the covenant goes through Isaac and Ishmael, who we see his name come up a few times, uh, middle part here of Genesis. Ishmael is Isaac's brother, and we've already gone through some of those chapters in their unique relationship. We'll see more in the coming weeks. And then uh, a few weeks ago, we saw how Abraham sent his servant back to Haran, back to the original family to find a wife for Isaac. And that's where we're first introduced to Rebekah. They are married, and Rebekah just happens to be the sibling of Laban. Okay, so that's that line going over back to Laban. And Rebekah and Isaac have Jacob and Esau. So the, that whole uh, interaction that they had, Jacob and Esau had, with their father Isaac and the giving of the blessing and the deception that occurred there. And we looked at how uh, Jacob's name really means a cheater. He's, he's a guy who cheats and he's been getting away with cheating, at least so far. And then we come to, yep, Esau gets married, Mahalath, which we don't know much about her, but we'll get a little bit about their relationship and where that goes, how that interacts in the coming weeks. And then Laban, he had these two daughters by the name of Leah and Rachel. And we are going to be introduced to those daughters this morning. In fact, uh, the marriage that happens between Jacob and both Leah and Rachel is where chapter 29 takes us. Is that confusing or does that, is that helpful? You can tell me the truth. All right, good, I hear one helpful. So this, this past week was not a complete waste of time. Okay, so one of the things, maybe the only thing that you notice is these constant connections 
back to Abraham's side of the family, right? Uh, that, that should be, if nothing else is clear with, with this graphic, you see the lines keep going back. So we looked at how at least there's a lot of dysfunction and there's a lot of rebellion or at least disobedience between these people and God and what we consider God's plan. There, there's confusion, there's dysfunction, but at least they get one thing right, that that covenant is meant to be for Abraham and his line, his descendants, and is not to be mixed in with the Canaanites. So that's why the lines keep going back to Abraham's family all the way back to Haran. The, they keep going back to find a wife back there because they know they're not to intermingle with the Canaanites. So that's something that the law, the God's law through Moses addresses, that kind of intermarriage stuff going on. We look at that and think, few too many dips in the same gene pool, right? You know, that's, there's a, something a little weird going on there, right? I mean, honestly, you look at that, uh, but ancient times, it happened. I don't know how frequently it happened, but it happened, and it didn't have the stigma attached to it then that it does now. So at least one observation, right, is fairly clear with that. We keep going back to the same family, and that's where we're at now. So Jacob has been sent uh, he got a second word of blessing from his father, and he's sent off by himself, apparently empty-handed, to go back to Haran to find the family, to find a wife. Now, that's where we're going to go. Before we read the scripture uh, for this morning, I want us to begin thinking about what it means to bargain with God, something that maybe you haven't thought of before, maybe you've done so verbally. Maybe that's something that's kind of hidden in the heart somewhere. Uh, I've used, I don't know how many times, two or three times, an illustration of Louis Zamperini. I don't know if that name rings a bell or not. The book Unbroken. There was a movie loosely based on his life. The movie kind of stunk, okay? You got to read the book. And it's really, it's, as far as top 10 books, it's definitely on the list. You got to read about this man's life. Uh, when he tells his, or when he told his story in the book, of his conversion moment. When he came to faith, he was at a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, he was wrestling with his own demons and the darkness that was in his life because of alcoholism and other things, the PTSD that he suffered during World War II. But yet there's this moment that he remembers in this big tent outside of Los Angeles, Billy Graham speaking, and he finally decides to come forward because in that moment, he remembers a bargain he made with God. If you remember the, the book, it's this awesome moment that I still, you know, when I, when I read it, I started tearing up because all oh, this terrible stuff that happened to him. But yet he has this moment of faith. At least faith is beginning to happen in his heart. And he remembers when he was adrift in the Pacific Ocean in his life raft with a couple other guys, he makes his bargain with God. And you hear about this a lot, especially in war situations, that death seems imminent, right? God, if you get me out of this, I'll give you everything. If then, right? And he remembers in that moment that faith is starting to stir that so many years previous to that, he made a bargain with God and that it's the final step in driving him forward and his life has changed. Now, you may not have any situation like that in your life, like Louis Zamperini, but for so many of us, there is something similar to that. So I call it the if you blank, then I'll blank Christianity. That approach to God where there is, it seems like 
that I ought to get something that I want out of this deal. So God, if you do this, then I'll respond in like manner. For example, if God, you give me direct answers, direct guidance, then I'll know what decision I should make. Or if God, you answer my prayer in the way that I want, then I'll know you're good and loving and worth following. Maybe you've said something like that. Or, if I am fully convinced you're doing what you should be doing, God, then I will commit my time and resources to your kingdom. And usually there's caveats to that too, like if it's working out for me, um, if you're providing what I want and when I want in a way that I think is appropriate for me, right? So, especially that last one, you probably don't verbalize that, right? Because that's a whole lot of guts. But there is something in our hearts sometimes that's kind of like that. You don't verbalize it, but, but there's kind of a bargaining, a holding back. If you prove yourself enough in enough ways that I'm fully satisfied in an ongoing way, then perhaps I will commit and love and, and give and serve, and follow, and so forth. So that kind of bargaining with God, there's nothing new. It's been around for a long time. And in fact, I think Jacob does it too. So immediately after his mountaintop visionary experience that we looked at last week, that dream where you see the steps and, and the angels ascending, descending, and even the Lord himself coming down and being next to him, right after that begins this bargaining process with the Lord. So let's look at that. And we're going to get there. I might need help here. This is why you can't give me nice things. Okay, Genesis 28, starting at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if... God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Then Jacob went on his journey. Now, the, the narrator calls it a vow in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow. So some scholars say this could just be ancient talk, that he's truly seeking out a way to be obedient to God. So that is a possibility. I prefer a different understanding, okay? I truly think, and especially given the context and the way that we've seen Jacob interact with other people, I truly think that Jacob in his way is trying to bargain things out with God. That even though he's had this awesome experience, Bethel, right? I'm, at the, the, I'm in the house of God and the Lord, the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. There is the mountaintop, awesome, you know, star in his eyes experience with the Lord that has led him to a dramatic proclamation and even to worship. But at the same time, you know, all these folks that we have, uh, that we look at, including Jacob, are complicated, right? They're 3D. At the same time, he's saying, I still have room here, even though 
I admit you're an awesome God worthy of worship. I still want to make sure that I've got the goods. I, I want to establish something else with you, Lord. So if you provide for my needs, you give me these things that I want and need, then I will worship you. Then you will be my God. Even as the Lord establishes his covenant now with the next generation, who is Jacob, he is bargaining with God. So on the one hand, he's deeply moved, and that's sincere and legitimate. It's an awesome thing, yet at the, or on the other hand, he has to move on, and how is he going to do that? He doesn't have a roadmap. And from all we can tell here, even though Isaac sent his son, blessed him, sent him out, he sent him out with nothing. And everybody who reads this wonders, you know, that Abraham sent his servant with everything, camels and, and gold and silver and all these gifts and trinkets for Laban and his family. We looked at that. He had an abundance of wealth that he traveled with. Why did Isaac say, my blessing on you, go and find a wife and give him nothing? We don't know. But he walks out of the door off onto this journey that would take weeks at best with nothing, empty-handed. So Jacob wants to establish a bargain. He needs to know, God, are you with me? Even though he's got God's promises already, God says, I will be with you, but still, you've got to come through, and I've got to see it and know it, wear it, I need the clothes, eat it. I need the food. You've got to give me the stuff. I think this is a perfect example of Jacob gloriously missing the point of the vision, of the interaction. What was the point? You've got to go back to last week. I'm not going to repeat the sermon. You're all thankful for that, right? The point of the Lord coming down and being with him and how that could change his life, and how he could move forward in faith. I think he's like so many of us that are just beginning to peek at the glories of God, and yet we still go back to rely on methods that used to work, or at least we think they used to work in relationship to God and other people. So he moves on. The last part is the beginning of chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey. He goes on to find a well. And at this well, he encounters Laban's daughter, Rachel, for the first time. So many things in this encounter, encounter that sound and look so similar to Abraham and his servant uh, that went out. They, they both find a well. They both start to encounter members of the family. They're surrounded by animals. There's a watering of the animals that takes place. Other people from the, the family come out. Other servants come out. Uh, in this case, there are also some drastic differences. Uh, Jacob is the one that does the watering, not Rachel. Uh, but the well and the animals and the encounter, they all lead us to believe or lead us to think that, oh, we've, we've kind of been here before. God is working in a way that should to get our attention what is he doing? Why is he doing things in a similar way? What could be the method or the approach here? Whenever we see things emphasized in Scripture, repeated, uh, you've got to take note of them, whether it's original Testament or New Testament. 
We need repetition. We all do. And sometimes maybe you get sick of that, hearing the same thing over and over again. Uh, but I really believe when, when God repeats something, it is to get our attention, to draw us into how is it that he's working? And what is it that he keeps hammering into us regarding himself, regarding our response to him, uh, especially when it comes to obedience in faith? What is it that we're supposed to be picking up on? So Jacob and Rachel meet. Apparently, they hit it off right away because the text tells us that Jacob sees her, kisses her, and begins to cry. They've never met before. Women, take note of this. If a man goes up to you, a complete stranger, kisses you and weeps, he may be your husband. Now, I'm no, I don't know if that's really all that socially acceptable or not, but at least back then it worked because she didn't run the other way. In fact, it leads in the right direction, this encounter with a family. Laban comes out. Laban is excited. Why is he so excited? This is probably the first interaction with this, remember that genealogy? The first interaction with the extended family they've had for years. I mean, decades. For all they know, the, the, you know, she left, uh, Rebecca left, and that was the end of it, right? Uh, they've traveled weeks and weeks away. So for any member of the family to come back and say, oh, I'm part of the family, remember? And they start connecting the dots and, and sharing names. This is a reason to celebrate. So that's what begins to happen. News spreads. So back at the homestead, the text tells us, uh, it kind of fast forwards a little bit, that Jacob has been sticking around for a few days, even a month, okay? He's already seen Rebecca, uh, and, or excuse me, he's already seen Rachel, and he knows he loves her. He's already kissed her. Uh, he's already kind of working his way into the family. And a month later, we begin to see this bargaining that happens between Laban and Jacob. So let's look at that. Chapter 29, verses 15 through 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than, than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Oh, isn't that the beautiful moment? Just a few days, right? Seven years. Man, you all feel that way about your bride, right? Just seven, seven years. Oh, if only I could have her, we could be married, right? That's what we're introduced to. Some things that are weird here in the text. Let's address these. Leah's eyes were weak. Everybody wonders, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, nobody knows for sure. The scholars I read, they're all in disagreement. But whatever it was, there was some kind of physical feature, maybe it had something to do with her eyes, that he found not attractive, not a big deal to dwell on. Sometimes that happens in the original Testament. There's something that seems and sounds mysterious. And we wonder, what, what do you mean her eyes are weak? Is it her vision? Is it, was she cross-eyed? Or was there something about her face? We don't know. We just don't know what's going on. Something that was not attractive. So Leah was not attractive. 
but Rachel was attractive. Served for seven years. Does that sound like a long time to you? I think it sounds like a long time. I think uh, that would you know, make anybody stop and consider, is this worth it, right? But it is worth it to him. He did not have a price to pay for the bride, which was typical and standard in ancient times. He came empty-handed. We don't know why, but he did. And there is even proof that this has happened in other cultures in ancient times when there was no money, there's no anything else to give but the person himself. So it's not like this is an isolated circumstance. Now, seven years is probably on the generous side compared to other examples from ancient times, but he wanted to kind of put an exclamation point at the end of his offer. He didn't want to lowball this, okay? He's in love with this woman. So he puts it at seven years to get Laban's attention and to seal the deal. So that's exactly what what he did. Now, the deceiver, who is Jacob, we've already been introduced to him. We know he's a cheater and deceiver, and to some extent a manipulator. We don't know exactly all he's thinking about here, other than he loves this woman and he doesn't want to let her get away. The deceiver, Jacob, is about to become the deceived. If you know the story, you know where it goes, but let's, let's go there together. So moving on, from cha- or for moving on, chapter 29, verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, after all the seven years, okay, bang, seven years are done. Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, exclamation point. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me in another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years years. What exactly does Laban promise Jacob? Now, back in verse uh, verse 19, Laban didn't say he'd give Rachel first. I don't have that verse on the screen, but he didn't. So, certainly the assumption on Jacob's part was he was getting the deal he wanted in the woman, with the woman that he loved. But it wasn't actually clarified in a way that was contractually clear. Uh, There was no guarantee, even though Jacob thought he had a guarantee. Seven years go by, Jacob says, give me my wife. All along, I'm pretty sure from the text that we read here, Laban, all along, was thinking, I'm going to give to him, to Jacob, the daughter that I want to give to him, the firstborn. Because, after all, matter of factly, that's the way we do it in our culture. 
We don't give away the youngest child first. So certainly he knows what he's doing. Certainly he understands the consequences of this. And he becomes the deceiver. And Jacob is now on the short end of the stick. So now, yep, he did get Rachel. He did get the wife he wanted for another seven years. But he also has Leah, another woman that he doesn't love. And again, this, this is ancient culture and times. There's no law that says you can't have more than one wife. This is very typical. All the patriarchs had more than one wife. So he's doing what was done. So we're not going to talk about uh, the right and wrong of that. It's just what they did. Okay? He's got two wives. One he didn't want and doesn't love. The other one he did want and does love. So we're going to look at the this whole story from the lady's perspective next week. We'll get deeper into that in chapter 29. But I do want to ask some questions here as we begin to work through even deeper what's going on in this passage. Number one, does Jacob have the right to be angry with God? We don't have much. In fact, we have zero in the text. Chapter 29, verse 30 it just says, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. We don't have this, oh, it seemed like a few days, right? So the first seven years went by pretty fast, because he thought he had, you know, the right girl coming as his wife. What did those second seven years feel like? You ever think about that? Now, uh, I doubt if they felt like just a few days, <laughs> I'm betting they feel like a whole lot longer period of time because he's got that whole time to think about how Laban cheated him, you know? I mean, to think about it. Put yourself in his sandals, okay? How can I get back at this guy? How can I make him pay? Uh, what's in it for me? If you spent your whole life being a deceiver and a manipulator and a con man, how am I going to get back at this guy? And where's God in this? God promised, the Lord God promised, I am with you. I will never leave you. It's part of that covenant. Remember in the vision all the way back? God has promised to be with him. So where was God when I was getting lied to? You got seven years to think about that. Where was God when I was deceived? When I got the short end of the stick? He ripped me off. Now I'm stuck with a woman I don't love. God, where are you in that? Now, does that sound familiar? To be at a place where you may have a growing anger, animosity, you distrust, not just for the people around you, but for God himself. Second question, what happens when you get what you didn't bargain for? Now think about that for a moment. And all the things that as believers we would like to have, we'd love to have more God moments, right? When we get what we wanted when the blessings become reality and we get to receive because God must surely be in those moments because it feels good because that's really what I wanted. What happens when I didn't get what I want? Is God no longer in that? Necessarily, right? I mean, do you think of that? Is a God moment still a moment? Can we describe a moment when we didn't get where I wanted a God moment? Is he still working? Is he still true to his promises? Is he still 
with you, never leaving you, never forsaking you, even when you don't get what you really wanted. Now, it's tempting to kind of emotionally, maybe even spiritually, at that moment, hold back from God. God, you didn't come through for me at the moment I needed it in the way that I expected you to. So the bargain is off. I'm not going to serve you wholeheartedly. I'm going to, what's the phrase, hedge my bets. I'm going to, I'm going to see how this plays out. Maybe there's something better for me to pursue or experience or to have than you, God, because I don't know if I can trust you. Now, that's nothing new either. That is something that I believe our bargaining hearts kind of chew on at times where we are tested, when things don't come through the way we expect it. Well, if you're a bargainer, if you've heard any of this, if you looked at Jacob, you thought, well, maybe some of that does go on in my heart. Let me tell you this, you're in good company. There are times where we all try to play a bargain with God. We all expect certain things. But you know what? Even in those times, as we see through the pattern of Scripture, the unfolding story of how God works, even those times, God graciously works when we push back or pull back from Him, not sure if He can be fully trusted or not. So, as we wrap up this morning, remember these things on your journey. I just love the fact that this whole time we've been reading from Abraham, from God choosing Abraham, all the way to this present moment, and it will continue through the rest of the book. Everything is a sojourn. Everything's a journey. They're always in process, which means that God is always at work in the process. And we keep seeing this over and over again in different ways, with different people, with their different issues and struggles, God is still at work. We are on a journey. Even Peter calls us sojourners in the New Testament. We are not at home. And anytime we begin to think we are, whether it's this nation or the place we're at physically or whatever, uh, we're not. Anytime we get too comfortable, we are in for an awakening. And it usually jars us into, oh yeah, the reality of Jesus is my home. He is not just now my present reality and my goal in life as a believer, but also for in, out into eternity. My journey is with him. So Genesis keeps reminding us that like Jacob, like the patriarchs, like all these people, we too are on a journey. So remember these things. Number one, more surprises are coming, so get used to it. And we don't like that, because we like to think that we've arrived. I like to think there is a point where I, I've learned enough and I get to stop learning. And I learned something else this past week, a stupid thing that I did that makes me mad. And I'm 53. I'm, I should be in a place where I've learned enough and I'm mature enough, I should stop making stupid, senseless, mindless mistakes and they still happen, and it makes me so mad. Have you been there? Those of you who are older, seasoned, right? You've been there, right? Like, maybe that's something I would expect when I was in my whatever, but 
nope, I still screw up. Oh, it burns even more. I still remember, man, I, I, maybe I've mentioned this in the past, a visitation pastor, when I was a youth pastor back in Iowa, his name was Don Stover. Um, he died a number of years ago, but he was 70s or probably early 80s when he was our visitation pastor. 50 plus years of ministry experience, been married to his wife, Virginia, for 50 years probably at that time. I still remember in the office one day, and I'm in my early 20s, I think Jennifer and I had been married only a very short period of time, and Don and Virginia were having an argument. And it wasn't like a, you know, fist out, I'm 80 and I'm going to prove something to your argument. It was more like a, not, not real hot, but a mild temperature, okay, that they were disagreeing on something. But it was there enough that I noticed that they were having an argument, okay? Uh, and I don't think it even resolved. And Virginia uh, went on to do her thing and Don's standing there. And I came up and I said, sort of half joking, but half serious, Don, I thought you, we all get to a place where stuff like that just ends. It just doesn't happen anymore because we're not fighting over stupid stuff. So it's kind of a joke because I knew that was ridiculous, but not so complete joke because I had respect for this older man of God and I figured he and his wife, 50 years married, were, pro were, were probably beyond you know, petty disagreements. So I asked him that. I, I thought you, you know, you'd eventually get to a place to a point where beyond, you're beyond that stuff. And there was just... This awesome moment where he, he turns and it just is quiet in the office and he says, oh, Bruce, no, just quietly and you could feel a little bit of the pain as he says, no. And I just love that, that moment of honesty and transparency that I had with Don uh, loved it because he, he chose to, to be transparent. Uh, but also, it was a learning moment for me. Really? I mean, you re we really don't arrive, do we? And whether it's marriage relationships or just personally with God, there are still things that hurt, that we've got to learn, that God is working on with our stubbornness, our disobedience, our self-centeredness, it's not just adolescence, it just keeps on going and it just keeps pouring out of us how I, I really do want to be the king of my world and, and don't push me beyond that. Um, so many things, and our things are different, some of them overlap, some of them are different, but we still struggle with. God is still at work on those things and it still hurts. The flaws in our character, he works to expose them, not hide them. Oh, it's okay. We won't worry about that. Are you kidding me? He exposes them. Deep-seated sins that we keep holding on to, he keeps uprooting them. And by his grace and by his power, he does that. Because if it wasn't Christ in me working on me, I'd leave him there. I'd continue to try to manage my own sin. And Jesus does not put up with that. Because he's the Lord. He's, he's the Lord of my life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, for if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, many times you go to that verse and talk about how, you know, the old is gone. The, the Greek is very dramatic in the, in the turning of the page there. The old is gone, the new has come. It's an imperative. It's something that has happened. Uh, and we stress that because of the miraculous regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to turn us into a new people, into a new person, right? That is, that it's all there. 
It's in the verse. There is suddenly this new life that we have in Jesus Christ that our eyes begin to open up to and we begin to experience. But at the same time, all of those old ways, they have to keep dying. It's called mortification. If you read the Puritans, you know, the, all these old dead theologians, they like these big words, the mortification of the flesh. You gotta keep killing it. You gotta just keep identifying those things and saying, I'm gonna be dead to that deep-seated sin today. And that hurts because you like it. You prefer it. You prefer to manage it and get along with it. Maybe I'll be a little bit better or happier today if I don't try to kill it. Death hurts. It's hard. So get used to it. Quit crying about uh, and being a sissy about this reality. Jacob, all of these original Testament characters keep bringing this back. There really should be no surprise to what God is doing with his new creation in us. Number two, you are on a journey of increasing faith, not an instant faith. Wouldn't that be awesome too, right? How many times have I thought about that? To have right away, in an instant way, everything I need to believe, to trust, to be obedient, to abide in Christ, right? Wouldn't that be great? No. It's a process of learning, of surrendering more and more of myself as I understand more and more of the motivation of the goodness of God's grace at work in me. I've got to keep focusing what's going on in this day, right now, that God is at work on in me. Not this year, not this decade coming up, uh, whatever is around the corner. It's what he's doing in me right now. The verses that we read this morning that from the psalmist, they sound awesome, right? They are awesome. Uh, verse 10 from Psalm 66 reminds us that the psalmist said, you've tested us and you've tried us. And that's where he responds in, in verse 20 by saying, blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. What is this prayer? Well, we don't know all the details in that psalm, but if it's something that has come from testing and trying, at least the psalmist says to us what? I know in all of my stupidity and my rebellion and of my weakness and my preferences, you're still God and you still love me. And none of that takes away from any of that. Steadfast love that is still at work in me. That's where Psalm 66 takes us and what I wanted us to get at least a taste of this morning as we read it together. So let me sum up that thought with this. The fact of his presence should be our focus today, not the fluctuating feelings of the present. Did you get that? The fact of his presence, his steadfast love, his abiding with me right now, that ought to be my focus that gets me through this part of the journey today, not the fluctuating, ever-changing feelings of the present. Number three, keep moving. Whether you understand God's will for your life or not, 
The journey he has set before you, man, it's so similar to what these men and women went through as they sojourned all over ancient Palestine, wondering what in the world is going on, where am I going to lay my head next? We haven't spent much time focused on understanding or discovering the will of God, which we really do need to, because there's so much of that in this passage, and that especially connects with this idea of bargaining with God that I've, that I've already mentioned. They had no roadmap, and we don't have roadmaps. Well, we have Scripture, but it doesn't give every turn and every detail. Go this mile and take a right turn and go a few miles that way, and, you know, as if God could give us such a detailed map that we never have to trust Him, that we never have to have faith that goes beyond our own capacity or capabilities. We only see so far down the road in this journey. So we have to trust in what He's doing. We see in these different examples, uh, you know, it's all fast forward as we read Scripture, but they show up and the wife is provided, right? They don't know, you know, how do they know which well to stop at? How do they know, do they stop in the journey? What is God's will for my life right now? Is it this will, uh, well? Or do we go over here because there's a well over there? Maybe that's where I'm going to find this woman. We, the, we don't have that kind of, of look. Were they thinking like that? I, I doubt it. I think that's more of a, of a modern, contemporary kind of uh, way to bargain with God that we have now. And here's what I mean. And I really think this is very important for us. For a lot of evangelical Christians today, we tend to pull back until we have the guarantee in that bargain with God's will. I'm not going to go there or go over here until I know for sure our resources aren't going to be wasted, uh, until I know for sure that the people that I'm going to minister to actually appreciate it and reflect that to me, Right? I'm going to hold back until I have enough uh, evidence of your presence, Lord, uh, and then maybe I'll go further, and then maybe I'll trust more. That is the biggest issue, I think, for us today, for believers. We want our guarantees. We want to know that we got the bang for our buck, that our resources and our time are not squandered, and then it's ministry. And look, then we can celebrate. Ooh, look at what God has done. And in some of those circumstances, I think it's more about looking what I've done. Because there was very little faith or trust in those circumstances. And we tend, at least, and I say we, maybe more of our evangelical flavor, okay? We tend to be a little more critical or judgmental on those other Christians that seem to be a little crazier. I don't know how else to say it. So, uh, uh, so I'll give you an example I know, uh, I don't know personally, uh, but I know of believers right now who have traveled to um, the regions around Afghanistan to be a part of relief efforts, and especially, well, with people that are fleeing the country in general, um, but also Christians who are looking for a way to stay alive. Now, the uh, faith, saving faith is a gift that all believers have. But the gift of faith goes on from that. And we have, in, as believers, we have in differing degrees. So I'm here to tell you, and I think I've mentioned in the past, that the gift of faith 
is not a big one for me because I tend to shrink back and, and bargain or maybe even criticize others and be a little judgmental sometimes. I'm just true confession time, okay? So when I hear of a group of people saying, we believe God has called us to go to the region around Afghanistan right now, what is my initial lack of faith response? Well, good luck with that. I'm telling you the truth. Because it sounds so absolutely impossible right now, right? And they're not wealthy people. They had zero cash reserves. They started praying. Within a week, they had tens of thousands of dollars. I don't know who they reached out to. Maybe they, they got a rich uncle. I don't know. See, I'm already judging. I'm already being critical. I don't know who they reached out to other than praying. And literally tens of thousands of dollars came pouring in. They had no visas. They had no way uh, to actually travel from the United States of America into any of that uh, Central Asian area of the continent, of the continent of Asia. And they did it. And they did it within days because God opened doors. They just, they just, they prayed and they felt like God was calling them to go there. Now, in my evangelical tradition, I find, and historically here, I found a whole lot of reasons to say, we better wait. That's not safe. Um, I don't know if that's a good use of resources. Uh, it's, it's a gamble. You may not come back alive. You may come back in a box if you go there with that kind of outreach. They're there right now. I'm getting a couple texts here and there of what's going on. They're trying to connect with believers that they know personally. Needle in a haystack. Afghanistan is a huge nation. And it is an absolute, you've read the, everything online, right? It's in turmoil. People are running for their lives in every direction. Some bordering nations have closed their borders officially. There's mountainous desert regions. People are running, you know, whether they have resources, whether they have water. People are running to try to save their lives. What or how will God use them? It is absolute by faith. Will they meet their friends? That they, they have no cell service right now. They can't call them because you know, all these things we take for granted communication-wise are at least gl glitchy at best, if not completely shut down in entire regions of that country. And they are trusting that God will provide. Now, after saying all of that, what is your response? What are you thinking you don't have to say anything. It's rhetorical. I've already confessed where I'm at and have been at with my lack of faith. Are we moving forward in our journey to keep moving even if we don't have all the guarantees and the bargain? We sure wish we could have. Are we at a place where we're willing to take the next step of faith? as believers and say, and especially if Lord has put it on our heart and we are in agreement and we're praying together, there's unity in that, where we can say, even though I don't have guarantees from you, God, I'm still going to trust that will affect all of my life right now. Are we there? What did Jesus tell the disciples? Well, if you're willing, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Uh, he who, who loses his life for my sake will truly find it. 
What we have, we have in Jesus. For me to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. There is nothing compared to Jesus. Nothing. Not my 401k, not my house and my green yard, right? All of the things that we bargain with that we hope that we can get to hold on to and still follow you, Jesus. Man, I've been convicted recently. I have been. And just, just to shine our light, a city on a hill, how, in how many ways do we bargain with God and we wait and expect more before we, if you, then I'll. I don't think he's ever called us to live like that as individuals or as his church, his body. We can trust him. Now, it may not be exactly what we want, but we can still trust him. The nation is changing. Our culture is changing. Society is different. Faster. The changes are coming faster than they've ever come in 200 plus years. All of this can either send a message to the church as our response to that message is either shrink back and circle the wagons and wait it out to the, to the judgment day, or we see in what's the changes that are happening around us as an opportunity to move forward and to trust that Jesus is still enough, just like the first century believers, and he hasn't changed, and he's still good, and then when he promises to bless the nations through us, he's still going to do it. And when he promises, I am with you and I'll never forsake you, he's still good on that promise, no matter what our feelings in this present moment tell us. He hasn't changed. He's still good. And he has a plan for us that is not dependent on me. You say, praise God to that. (laughs) He's still doing something. Now, a few weeks ago, I called you to be fasting and praying. And I don't know if anybody remembers that, and that's okay, because I say different stuff, and I don't expect to remember everything I say. No one does. But a call to make a specific time, carving out time, not hoping it'll happen somehow magically, but carving time in, in our week, in this coming week, to do without media or food or whatever it is, to push aside those things that tend to crowd in, and just spend a few minutes, and whatever is a good first start, good step for you, 20 minutes, whatever, during your lunch break or during something else. Push the stuff aside and just pray. It's not about anything else. It's about focused time with Jesus. He teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name. You are holy, and you are wonderful, right? He teaches us to pray then. And then what does he also teach us to pray? Your will be done. Your kingdom come, your rule, Lord, make it so glorious and powerful, beginning in my life, and your will be done, whether it makes sense to me or not. I want to be obedient, and I want to be faithful, and I want to follow in that. So my call to you this week is is those things you see in the screen, to find that time to pray and to fast from something else, and to keep seeking his will, whether it makes sense or not, so he can be glorified, so his light shines through us, and we could be learning along this journey, learning what it means to truly trust, to truly be obedient. Let's pray. Lord, I want to begin. The, the, the folks that I'm thinking of uh, in their journey 
of trusting you right there in Central Asia, depending on you wholly, completely, each hour of the day, not knowing what's going to happen next, or if they're going to be thrust out or kicked out or, or what. Lord, I, I ask for your blessing on their efforts as you lead them. Make them wholly receptive, Holy Spirit, to what you'd have for their journey right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would provide for those believers who are wondering what's next in that nation and in those surrounding regions. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would bless and keep them, that, you, that your peace would guard their hearts and minds, that they would understand in the moment even if it's a terrifying moment, that you're good and that you haven't left and your glorious purposes will be accomplished and you are worthy of praise. Lord, I pray that we would all, whether we've been extremely blessed with comfort and busyness or not, that we would choose to to receive you in that new, fresh way and respond to you, whether we've been blessed or not, to lift you up, And Lord, I pray that a deepening reverence for your holiness would impact our hearts and minds, that we would long for and seek out and find joy in being with you this week. And Lord, I ask as we do that, you would speak. You would speak to your servants because we pray for wisdom and we know you've promised to give it when we ask. So we ask, Lord, for wisdom and discernment and guidance so we would be found true and faithful to what it is that you're calling City on a Hill to. We want to be responsive, even if we don't understand, and even, Lord, if it challenges us in ways that we don't appreciate at the moment. Lord, be glorified in what you're doing and how you're doing it, and for the church, for the glory of Jesus, for the kingdom that is coming and all the more power and wonder, we are thankful that we get to be a part of it. Glory to God. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our Genesis Sermon series. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including First Peter, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.